Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you for drawing us together, and I pray that you would speak and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to our second lesson in the book of Acts. As we begin Acts 2, our attention is focused on the 120 followers of Jesus who were huddled in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had commanded them to wait in the city for God to fill them with his Holy Spirit, who would empower them to be his witnesses and to spread the good news about Jesus, just as they had been commanded. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had only been given on a temporary basis to certain people, such as kings, priests, and prophets. However, God had promised even then that the Holy Spirit would one day be given to all who believe. Now, before we look at our text for today, it is important to remember that Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14 teaches that when a person believes in Jesus Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit as a seal or a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance. We learned in our last lesson that Jesus' followers received the Holy Spirit on the night of Christ's resurrection. This truth was recorded for us in John chapter 20. On that night, they had been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now they waited to be filled to overflowing just as Jesus had instructed in Acts chapter 1. So let's pick up in chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in their own language. Acts 2 opens on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish holiday that celebrated 50 days after Passover. Pentecost was one of the three occasions each year when all Jewish males over the age of 12 had to come to the temple in Jerusalem. Consequently, the city was teeming with many God-fearing Jews from different regions who'd arrived for the celebration. As the disciples gathered together to wait for what Jesus had promised, they heard a sound like the blowing of a violent wind from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were meeting. Luke reports that along with that sound, what seemed to be tongues of fire came to rest upon each of them, and they were all filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit of God, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In other words, they were supernaturally enabled to speak in other known languages, and that 
together with the rushing sound and the tongues of fire, definitely attracted some attention. Verse 6 reveals that a crowd began to gather when each one heard them speaking in their own language. Let's read on verse 7. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. The crowd was utterly amazed because Galileans were not known for being well educated and yet these simple individuals were able to speak to them in their own native languages. They heard them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Whereas the Holy Spirit in this case enabled the disciples to speak in languages they had not learned, it's worth noting that this is not the only way in which the gift of tongues might operate. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul also indicates that the Holy Spirit enables some people to speak in both the tongues of men and of angels. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he goes on to confirm that when an individual speaks in a heavenly language, they do not speak to people but to God. No one understands them because they utter mysteries by the Spirit. In that case, if others are present, one should pray for an interpretation that would help the rest understand what is being said. This was not necessary here in Acts 2 because these were recognizable languages that were understood by those present, proving that the message of Christ is indeed for all people. God wants the good news of Jesus Christ understood by all who hear it, and although the unbelieving people in the crowd mocked the disciples, others stopped to listen in amazement. We're told that Peter and the other apostles stood up to address the mockers who had accused them of being drunk in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. 
I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter affirms that they were not drunk, as some supposed, for no faithful Jewish person would be drinking that early in the morning, especially on a feast day. Instead, he explains that the Old Testament prophecy from the prophet Joel was being fulfilled in their presence. The prophecy that Peter quotes from Joel 2 verses 28 to 32 details all that God promised to do in and through his people during the time known as the last days. The last days is the period of time beginning with the first appearance of Jesus Christ and ending with his second coming on the great and glorious day of the Lord at the end of the ages. Joel's prophetic message, therefore, spans a long period of time during which God promises to pour out his spirit on all people who put their faith in Christ. Showing no favoritism, God says he will empower both men and women, young and old alike, to prophetically speak his message of truth to others. The empowering gift of God's Holy Spirit is for all those who belong to him. God promises a time of wonders and signs that would eventually culminate with the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, a time at which Christ will return to judge all of mankind. That time will certainly be a day of real concern, when even the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. But God's incredible reassurance is that every single person who entrusts themselves to the Lord Jesus, everyone who calls on his name, will be saved. For as Peter would later declare, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved." One can only imagine how Peter's words affected the crowd as they realized they were witnessing the working of the Holy Spirit in their midst. As Jews, they would have known that God had poured out his Spirit in the past on only a select group of individuals, kings, prophets and priests. But now they realized that the Holy Spirit was being poured out on all who followed Christ to the praise of God's name. Peter continued with his explanation in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
Peter was speaking to Jewish people who came from many nations, but even so, they likely had heard about the traveling rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, whose death and resurrection had occurred just weeks before in Jerusalem. Peter carefully lays out the truth of the gospel in his message, and we should pay careful attention to what he includes, because it will teach us how to share Christ with others. Notice that he does not react defensively or argumentatively to their mocking, nor does he allow their ridicule to put him off. He emphasizes Christ's humanity, saying that Jesus was a man from the town of Nazareth. But he was no ordinary man, however. God's favor was upon him, a fact that was proved by the many miracles and wonders and signs that God the Father worked through him. Even the Jewish religious leaders had recognized that. You'll remember Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, had commented to Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 2 that they knew him to be a teacher who had come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that Christ did if God were not with him. Peter went on to declare that Jesus had been handed over to the Jews who, with the help of the Romans, had put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But notice that Peter emphasized that this had been done according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. In other words, the cross was no accident. It was part of God's eternal plan for the salvation of mankind. However, though the suffering and death of Jesus Christ was indeed a fulfillment of prophecy, the guilt of those who had crucified him was in no way lessened. They were wicked men. Peter then boldly declared that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was final proof that Christ was God's anointed one, his Messiah, for death had no hold on him. It was the truth of the resurrection that transformed the disciples from cowards into heroes, making them willing to die for what they knew to be true. Jesus Christ is alive. He has defeated sin and death, and because he lives, his followers will live also. We are able to have a relationship with him today and will have eternal life with him forever. Many years before God had promised Jesus' ancestor, King David, that one of his descendants would have an eternal kingdom and throne. In verse 25, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, in which David talks about that descendant who was to come. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. David was speaking a prophetic message from the Lord in these verses, and so he speaks in the first person as if the words were about him, when really they were about his descendant, the Messiah. 
In this prophecy, it becomes absolutely certain that one of David's line will be resurrected from the dead. This individual would not be lost to the grave, nor would this holy one see decay. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter correctly applies David's words to the resurrection of his descendant, Jesus Christ. It was Jesus and not David who had been restored to life, as Peter then explains in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. In verse 30, Peter reminds them that David was not only a king, he was also a prophet, and he was speaking here of what was yet to come. Reiterating David's prophecy that the Messiah, God's Holy One, would not be abandoned to the grave, Peter proclaimed that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy, God raised him from the dead. Peter testified that he and all the disciples were eyewitnesses to both his resurrection and his return to heaven in the clouds. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit they were seeing was the fulfillment of what God had promised so long before. Peter then draws from another prophecy that could not have applied to David personally. In verse 34, he quotes from Psalm 101 verse 1. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It seems a strange thing for David to say, doesn't it, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But let's think it through. In saying this, David declares that he had a Lord, an owner, a master. And according to the revelation that God gave him, David saw God the Father raise up his Lord and seat him at his right hand. Being seated at the right hand of a ruler was a position of supremacy, of superiority over all others. That person was given power and authority and control. Though Jesus was his descendant, David saw him seated in the heavens at the right hand of God. He understood Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and as such he was Lord of all. Being seated at God's right hand also indicated that Jesus had won the victory over sin and death. 
In those days, it was common for a victorious king to demonstrate his complete victory and authority over his defeated enemies by humiliating them publicly. There were many ways to do that, one of which was to make the defeated foe a footstool. The conquering king would literally place his feet on the bent back of his defeated enemy. Peter wanted all Israel to be assured of the fact that it was Jesus of Nazareth whom they had crucified, that God had made both Lord and Christ, and that one day his enemies would be his footstool. Peter's words had an incredible effect on the Jews who listened, and we're told in verse 37, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Luke tells us that Peter's words pierced their hearts and brought about such conviction that they immediately recognized their guilt and asked what could be done. Peter's reply was simple and direct, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for repent here in the text is metanoeo, meaning not only to change one's mind, but also to change one's direction as well. In other words, true repentance causes a person not only to be sorry for what they've done, but to choose a new direction for their life as well. The rite of baptism is a symbol of what has occurred spiritually. People were baptized by immersion, meaning the individual was lowered under the water before being raised up again. This was a clear illustration that an individual's old self had been put to death, they had been buried and then raised to a new life in Christ. Peter declares that baptism is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ, meaning that it is in complete accordance with everything that Christ preached concerning the forgiveness of a person's sins. And he promised that upon trusting Christ, they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This was God's promise, not only for those Jews who were present and for their children, but it was his promise for all who are far off as well, which was a common way of referring to the Gentiles at that time. The Holy Spirit would be given to all who would answer God's call. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter continued to warn the people to be saved from this crooked generation. And though not everyone accepted his message, many did about 3,000 according to scripture. 
Not only did they hear God's message that came through Peter that day, they immediately responded to it. They did not wait, thinking that they had to be good enough to take the next step of baptism. And nor should we. We come to Christ as we are by faith. We are then to obey his command to be baptized. And then after that, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, he will teach us and lead us into all truth. But how does God want us to grow as his people? Well, look at the example of those in the early church as laid out in verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to their common faith in Christ, fellowshipping as they met in the temple to worship and also in their homes. Whenever they met, they broke the bread of the Lord's Supper, remembering his instructions to them. They also prayed fervently. These early believers continued in the Jewish traditions of hours of prayer at the temple and special times set apart for fasting and prayer. But they must also have prayed the prayer that the Lord had taught them, what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. Everyone was filled with awe toward God. In other words, they were filled with respect and wonder for God and all that he was doing in their midst. Jesus had told them that their love for one another would demonstrate that they were truly his followers, and the early church certainly proved that. Luke says that they were even willing to sell their possessions to provide for each other's needs. This was not an early example of communism or socialism as has been incorrectly put forth by various people through the years because later we see people retained rights over their own property but rather this was done to show their love and commitment to each other. In those early days, the church enjoyed the favor of all people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As we end our lesson, I know many are wondering why God seems to work differently today than perhaps he did in the book of Acts. We have to ask, do we live according to the pattern of that early church, or have we drifted from it? Could that perhaps be our answer? Do we long to know more of Christ? Are we committed to fellowship? What unites us with one another? And where do we find our best friends? Would we describe ourselves as being devoted to worship and prayer? Are we willing to share what we have with others? Do we still expect the Holy Spirit to work in our midst? 
Let's ask God to open our hearts to what he wants to show us and stir in us the desire to follow where he leads as we explore these things. Let's pray. Father God, keep us open to you. Help us not to define you in a way that you aren't. Lord, I pray that you would lead us into all truth, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would empower us to be your witnesses to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.